Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, salvation is not just a a moment in, in which we pray a prayer and are saved, is it? Prayer's not just that moment when we bow the knee and we lift up our, our heart to heaven and we pray for salvation. That's only the beginning. Being justified by faith is only the beginning. In fact, I would say that salvation is a life. It's a life of unity with Christ as part of a new creation in him. Dallas Willard wrote a a chapter in one of his books entitled, Just That, Salvation is a Life. And even if I I never read a word of that chapter, I think that the name of the chapter itself is, is worthy of pondering. Salvation is a life. He writes this, he says, Why is it that we look upon our salvation as a moment that began our religious life instead of the daily life we receive from God. We're encouraged somehow today to remove the essence of faith from the particulars of daily human life and relocate it in special times, places, and states of mind. More and more we are realizing the enormity of this problem. Upon occasion we exhort Christians to take Christ into the workplace or Bring Christ into the home. But doesn't this only point to the deadly assumption that Christians normally leave Christ at the church? Salvation is a life. And isn't this what we've been talking about all along in Romans chapter 5? I mean, look back for a moment here at verse 1 as we review a little bit of the context where we are. Paul begins this chapter having firmly established the fact that we are justified by faith. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he goes on to recount and exult in all the many benefits of our salvation. Things like peace with God, access into grace, hope both for the future and the present, love even when you were at your worst. And of course, the supreme benefit of all, God himself. Knowing God himself. And so now in in verse 12, after recounting these many benefits, Paul says here once again, therefore. He's drawing another conclusion from all these benefits. And then he begins to make a comparison begins to make a comparison by saying this. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He begins to make this comparison. He says, just as sin came through one man and death through that sin and through that one man. And you sort of expect him to complete the comparison. But 
Paul, in, in sort of typical fashion, sort of goes off on a holy rabbit trail uh, as he begins to uh, sort of establish this fact of our unity with Christ. He's actually not going to complete the comparison between Adam and Christ until we get down to verse 18. But here, our, our first point, and this is what we talked about last week, was Paul establishes our unity with Adam. Our unity with Adam in verses 12 through 14. Paul first wants to establish the unity and solidarity we have with the first Adam. Right? We spent our whole time on this last week as we establish this fact that our, our unity with Adam means that his sin is regarded as my sin. Right? His death is my death. His consequence is my consequence. And, and, he, and what Paul means here is not just that I'm impacted by what Adam did because I'm downstream from him, but he means much more that, that his sin is regarded as my sin. And therefore, I'm not just a sinner because I sin, which is true. I, am a, I do sin, and that makes me a sinner. But I'm not just a sinner because I'm, I, I sin. Way before I ever even committed one sin, as I entered into this world, I was already a sinner in Adam as a son of Adam, and you perhaps as a daughter of Eve, we are sinners and therefore we sin. Seems kind of like a, a raw deal, right? First time we hear about that. Seems kind of like it, it, it isn't fair, perhaps, we might say. But we concluded last week that this is actually a wonderful grace from God. Because the fact is that because we fell into sin through a representative, Adam, that this also means that we can be saved through a representative, and that is Christ. Now, I'm tempted to re-preach that whole sermon again because I'm getting into it. But if you missed that, I would encourage you to go online and, and, and check that out. We, it was really a, a deep sermon as we, we plowed into some deep theology with that. But it's important for you to understand the depth of your solidarity and your unity with the first Adam. Your problem, your sin problem is deeper than you might know. Right? You, you're in a position of being condemned, in a position of being a sinner before you even commit your first sin. And it's such a, a fouled-up root. The fountainhead is so spoiled that, that the, the end result is that we are all completely ruined. It's just a, a complete devastation of the human race. It's such a complete devastation that God knew that He needed to send a second Adam to begin again. That's how complete was our devastation here. And so that's what we see here in the second half of this passage in verses 15 through 21, our unity with the second Adam, who is Christ. It's hard to understate just how important is this concept of our unity as believers with Christ. 
our unity with the indwelling, living Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified and was, who rose again for our justification, for our salvation, moment by moment, the indwelling Christ. I, I, I said a few weeks ago that, you know, when Christ was here on this earth, he actually said to his disciples, it's better that I leave. It's better that I leave? Jesus, what do you mean? It's better that I leave and send to you the Holy Spirit to, be, to, to fill you. The indwelling Christ in you is better than Christ next to you on the road. Unity with Christ, Christ filling you and indwelling you, is better than having Jesus walking beside you. Something better that we have, we have complete unity with him as he fills us and re- makes us new from the inside out. And so this is where we left off last week here at the end of verse 14. As we, we read here that Adam in describing our unity, I mean Paul in describing our unity with Adam actually goes on at the very end of the verse here to say that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He was in the pattern of the one who was to come. He's a type of Christ. And we discussed last week how Adam and Christ are similar in one primary way. They both did something that counted for more than just themselves. Right? Adam, he sinned and that counted for more than just himself. It counted for, his, for the entire race. It counted for us. And he's like Christ in that because Christ did something that counted for all who will believe in him. He's a representative. That's the way in which Adam and Christ are similar. But with that said, as soon as it comes out across Paul's lips or across his pen here, he can't help but jump in and immediately begin to clarify. Because, you see, don't ever make the mistake that, of thinking that Adam and Christ are somehow on the same level, that they're somehow parallel in every way because they're not. And, and Paul's going to launch into sort of this doxology, this praise for Christ and how much more Christ is. How much better is Christ? Adam is the representative head over all of humanity at creation, but Christ, the second Adam, came as a representative head over the new creation, and he is therefore better. He is more in every way. I like the way Greg Gilbert said it, and I I put this on the screen last week too. Both Adam and Jesus were great kings and representatives of humanity so that what each of them did counted for more than just themselves. So I think the pattern here is instructive in, in how Adam and Christ are similar, and yet Paul spends most of his time in this analogy explaining the ways in which they are dissimilar. And and, and as he contrasts them here, we we have an opportunity just to to praise Christ for who he is. And and so that's what we're going to launch into here in in the next three verses, verses 15 through 17, the much moreness of the unity with Christ. First one here. 
in verse 15, Paul basically says that abounding unmerited favor is greater than merited death. Say that again. Abounding unmerited favor is greater than merited death. Paul absolutely gushes here in verse 15 with grace language. In fact, he piles up five closely related expressions of the word grace in Greek. You know, in English, we, we largely just have one word for grace. It's grace. But um, if you could look behind the English here to the, to the Greek here, you'll see uh, all the different words that Paul uses here. He's just piling up term after term trying to, to describe the grace of God. He says, the free gift, verse 15, that's the word charisma, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace, that's the word charis, the grace of God and the free gift, it's another Greek word, doria, the free gift by the grace, another word, kariti, of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He's just stacking up the, the, the words for grace here. He's gushing forth. And what we see here in this verse is that in unity with Adam, we are trespassers and we get what we deserve, death. Just like God said. But in unity with Christ, we get what we don't deserve. We get grace, unmerited favor, and not just a little bit of it. Paul says that it abounds to us, and what that means is that it fills us up to the point of overflowing. I think a commentator by the name of Kent Hughes said it well. He said, the sin of Adam brought death, a decaying, degenerative force, but grace brought a far more dynamic power, life. It not only did away with death, but restored what had been destroyed. Another commentator by the name of Christopher Ash, he said it this way. He said, there is a contrast here between the death of many and the overflow of grace to many. It is not just that grace and death are opposites, but that the overflow of grace is more powerful than death. And that the grace of God comes by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better Adam, because abounding grace is greater than merited death. Secondly, justification in the face of multiplied trespasses is greater than condemnation for one trespass. Look at verse 16. Paul says, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see the contrast here is between, really between the the one trespass and the many trespasses, right? So what what we see here is, is, is there is a contrast here between the fact that the, the result of the one trespass in Adam was condemnation, and the result of the, after that many trespasses was justification in Christ, but it's so much more poignant here as we, we see that, that 
what Adam did, right? One little trespass. Following one little trespass, we receive death and condemnation. But how much greater, how much more is Christ who came in after exponentially multiplied trespasses since the time of Adam? And yet the outcome was not only forgiveness of sins, but also justification being declared righteous by faith in Him. So much better, so much greater. Greg Gilbert said it this way. He said, if justice cried out for the whole of humanity to be condemned after one trespass, imagine how loud justice was crying out after a few thousand years of humans piling up sin at the foot of God's throne. And yet grace abounded all the more. Jesus is the true and better Adam because justification after many trespasses is greater than condemnation after one trespass. And Paul goes on here. He says, thirdly here in verse 17, believers reigning in life is greater than death reigning over us all. Right? Look at verse 17. He says, here, here in verse 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through Adam, death reigned. And we expect Paul to say here that through, uh, through Christ, life reigns. But he doesn't say that. He says, through Christ, we, the graced and justified ones, the ones who receive the, the, the grace and the justice and the, and the justification, we reign in life through him, through Christ. Again, a, a commentator here says, verse 17 contains a surprising contrast. The opposite of the reign of death is the reign of Christians who do what Adam was supposed to do. In Christ, as Abraham's corporate offspring, they will rule the world. Right? That's, Christ succeeds in every way that the first Adam failed, and in him we will reign the way Adam was intended to reign over this creation. Jesus is the true and better Adam because believers reigning in life is greater than death reigning over us all. Now, these three things definitely overlap with one another. And I, I really think here, if I could sum all this up, I think Paul is driving home this point through repetition that while Adam is a type of Christ, Jesus is in fact the true and better Adam. And that union with Christ is so much better than union with Adam that you almost can't even compare the two. As you step back and compare unity with Adam versus unity with the second Adam, Christ, you have to conclude with Paul the much moreness of unity in Christ. After all, as, as one commentator, Tom Schreiner, put it, he said, it's one thing to blemish what is beautiful, but it is a much harder thing to set straight what has already been made crooked. 
I'll never forget uh, one time when, when someone asked me the question, hey, Stan, do you want to play 52-card pickup? I was a kid at the time. Sure, I replied. I was so bored that I'd even play a game that I, I didn't even have, hadn't even heard of before. All right, you go first, he said. And then before I could think about it much longer, he pulled out a deck of cards and flipped them out into the room. 52 cards just sprang into the air. He said, okay, pick them up. 52-card pickup. Well, I don't remember how I responded because it was so long ago, but I can tell you I never fell for that trick again. But it reminds me of this because it's much easier to make a mess than it is to clean it up, right? So much easier to make a mess than to clean it up. Uh, another example. I brought in this coat hanger this morning, an old wired coat hanger. Which is easier, bending and, and, and mangling a coat hanger? Right? Have you ever tried to set something like this back to the way it looked when you, when you first bought it? It is nigh unto impossible. You take a, get a wire, you know, get some pliers out and try to get this looking back as nice and shiny and straight as it was before, you'll never be able to do it. Another example I thought of. The other day, someone in our house, I won't say, I won't say who, uh, was attempting to make some smoothies. Problem was, the blender was not put together quite right. So guess what happened when, the more, the, when uh, that person tried to pour some milk into that blender? It just came spewing out the bottom and went all sorts of places you, you never would want milk to seep. <laughs> and it, I had this thought again, it's much easier to spill milk than it is to clean it up. And I, I think there's a, a reason we're tempted to cry over spilled milk. I didn't cry, but I came close. You know, what Adam did easily, in, in just a moment, in that trespass, when he reached out his hand and he plucked the forbidden fruit, it was so easy, wasn't it? It was so easy to bring sin and death to represent us in that way and to bring sin, sin and death into the world. It was so easy. It didn't take greatness. But comparatively, what Christ did, much harder. And it is a much greater work that he did upon that tree for us. And so Paul, as he steps back and con considers this comparison between the first Adam and what he did in mangling humanity. And the second Adam, as he came and he made many righteous, he gave many life in him. He just praises the Lord and he draws some conclusions here in verses 18 and 19. He, let's just read those verses together. He says, therefore, it's a conclusion. 
as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's incredible what Christ has done. In these verses, Paul comes back to his original comparison that he started way back in verse 12 as he starts to say, just as, and he starts talking about Adam, and then he kind of trails off on a long rabbit trail. Well, he finally here in verses 18 and 19 gives us the comparison. He says, as one trespass led to condemnation, so, uh, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. He completes the contrast. He brings it all full circle in both of those verses. Uh, the comparison here in verse 18 is that both Adam and Christ have had one decisive act with drastically different results. Adam, one trespass resulting in condemnation for all men. Christ, one act of righteousness, justification in life for all men. And then in verse 19, there's a contrast in the nature of that one act. Adam's act was that of disobedience, and it made many sinners. And Christ's act was obedience, and it made and it will make many righteous. What was the, the one act of righteousness that Paul is describing here? You know, Christ did many acts of righteousness in his life and ministry, uh, but I think the, the one act of righteousness, if you were to boil it down to, to just one act, it would be uh, what Christ did for us upon the cross. I thought of Philippians Chapter 2, in that great hymn quoted there by Paul, beginning in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was through this one great act of obedience to his Father that the many will be made righteous. Now, this is the conclusion that Paul draws from this contrast, but before we move on from it here, I have one other point of clarification I want to make for you that this, this is the conclusion, but it is not universalism, okay? There are many people who read these verses here and they conclude that because of what Christ did, all will be saved. And so I, I need to just clarify that for you here. Um, as we reach this conclusion, uh, I, I really want to discuss this because I kind of skimmed over it in verse 15, and again here in verses 18 and 19, you'll notice that, that Paul refers uh, again and again to the many and the all. Again and again throughout this passage as he's contrasting the, the many in Adam and the all in Adam, and he's talking about the many and all in Christ, 
And we have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly does Paul mean when he's talking about many and all in these verses? If you take them out of context, these verses do seem to support an idea of universalism. What is universalism? Universalism is the belief that all people without exception will be saved. I mean, look, look at this verse again, verse 18. It, at, at first glance, it almost seems to say this. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Does that mean that all will be saved? Right? If, if all die in Adam, are all going to be saved in Christ? Will all be universally going to heaven? Will hell be empty? So how should we respond to this? First, we should affirm that the words many and all that Paul uses throughout this passage are being used interchangeably to mean all. Right? This is different than the way we use the word many. So when, when Paul uses the word many here, he's, he's really using it interchangeably with the word all. But we don't often use the word many in that way. In, in fact, I usually use the word many to mean more than a few, but not the whole enchilada, right? So, for example, I might say many people like peanut butter. But by that, I, I wouldn't be indicating that all people like peanut butter because some people hate peanut butter, right? Some people are allergic to peanut butter. I see some people testifying out there. Paul is not using the word many in this way. So, for example, look, look up at verse 15 for just a moment. Paul said in that verse, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, he's not saying that only some people died because of Adam. Right? He's not using the word many in that way. He's not saying, well, many people like peanut butter or many people will die because of Adam. No, he's, when he says the word many there, he means all. And he'll interchange that word throughout the passage. Instead of saying many, sometimes he'll outright say the word all. So that's the first thing we need to re recognize here is that when Paul uses these two words, he's using them interchangeably. Now, secondly, well, let me back up for just a minute. I have one more thing I wanted to say about that. Paul, when, he, when he's using this word many in this way, I don't even think he's thinking numerically. Uh, it's, it's clear, rather, that he's contrasting the impact of one man compared to a much larger group, right? So when he speaks of one man, Adam, doing an action, and he's contrasting that with the many, he's, he's not thinking in, in, in numerical terms. He's comparing the, the oneness of it and the manyness of it over here. Hopefully that makes sense. But secondly here, uh, we must deny that this means that all will be saved universally. Paul is teaching here that the many or all re represents all those under a particular representative head, whether that's Adam or Christ. So I've got a little picture here to, to represent this. If you're kind of lost in my words here, um, 
hopefully this picture will clarify it for you. So the many or all who are united with Adam rever refers to all people universally, right? Because we are all born in Adam. Therefore, what Adam did impacts all of us because we are united to him. All of us are united to him universally. However, the many or all who are united to Christ refers only to all those who are united to him by faith, right? So look at verse 18 here, where um, only those who have been united to Christ by faith can be said to have been justified. Look at this, verse 18. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, right? So we know from reading the rest of the New Testament that the only way that you can be justified is by faith, right? Jesus dying on the cross doesn't make everyone in the world universally justified, declared righteous before God. It is only those who are united to him by faith. And that's the contrast here, being united in Adam or being united in Christ, only those who are in Christ have life. 1 John 5.12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, as I said, we, we have to understand this in the context of the New Testament and, and the rest of what the Scriptures teach. Likewise, we have to allow verse 17 to control our interpretation because look at verse 17 here. It, in the midst of comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ, Paul limits that com comparison here to all those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ, right? As he's speaking of those who are in Christ, he says in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He narrows that group, you must receive the abundance of grace by faith in him. You aren't just counted as united in Christ universally. Now, if time permitted, I could go on to demonstrate this more from the rest of Scripture, but I believe I'm sort of preaching to the choir this morning on this issue. But it's important to understand, I think, that, that, that some people do take this verse and they try to establish the fact that hell will be empty. Or as the slogan has gone here recently, love wins, they say. But there are some pretty severe implications to that line of thinking. Thirdly here, and finally, in the last two verses, verse 20 and 21, I want you to notice the surprising function of the law in, in all of this. In these closing two verses of the chapter, I want you to, to notice here how Paul refers to the law in all of this unity with Adam or Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you notice the, the role of the law in all of this imagery? 
Paul says that the law came in. The law came in. So here, here's this imagery where Paul is summing up the whole of human history. He's summing up the whole of salvation history of how God's been working in this world. And he sums it up through two great representatives, Adam and the second Adam, Christ. And any Jewish person who would have been reading this, any even Jewish Christian who would have heard this read in Rome would have been wondering, well, where does the law fit into all this? And so here at the end of this great analogy, Paul brings it up and he says, oh, by the way, the law came in to increase the trespass. This word here, came in, it's really just one word in the original language. And commentators tell me that it, it was widely used in Greek literature to describe the secret entry of someone to a city or a home, often for unwelcome or unwanted purposes. So Paul's basically describing the law, the, the, the law that was so cherished and had such a, a pride of, of place with the Jewish people. He's describing it as something that sort of snuck in the side door. He's sort of relegating it to a, a, a matter of, of, of secondary importance here. It's something that, that came along late in time to increase our sense of our trespasses. Right? It's, the, it's the use of the law that, that functions like a mirror. As we look into God's law, we, we look at it, and we're not supposed to say, wow, if I just follow this, then I, then I will be saved. Right? That's what the Jewish people thought. They thought that the law was given to curb trespasses, but Paul says it actually had the opposite effect, that when the law came, it increased our trespasses. And, and it, was, it functioned like a mirror to show us how we were sinners. It showed us that we needed a second Adam to come. The whole of world history and salvation history is summarized here in two men, Adam and Christ. And unity with the second Adam is held up as greater by far. And meanwhile, the law is portrayed here as sneaking in the side door late in time to increase our sin. And yet, even in this, Paul exalts. He says, because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We're going to talk more about that here in the coming chapters. But for now, let's just dis discuss for a few moments how we can apply these things. I just have two points of, of application for you. First is just the question, who are you united to? Who are you united to? Are you united to the first, Adam? in whom all we find is sin, death, condemnation? Perhaps there's someone here this morning willing to admit that they have maybe mangled their lives, sort of like this coat hanger. Listen, you're, you're never going to be able to, to straighten things out you're never going to be able to get this thing, the, the, 
mess of your life back into shape. You can try your best, but it's never going to be whole again. And even as you try to fix it, you'll find that then something comes along and it messes it up again, right? Just tangles it all up. Let me tell you some good news. If, if you're here this morning and you recognize that your life is mangled and that is messed up and that you've been trying to fix it and you can't seem to get it straight, then you're actually in a great place. Because you're in a place where you can see that you don't just need to straighten this old form out. You need a completely new life. Jesus died for your sins. And he rose again to give you newness of life. So we could be united with Christ. In Christ, our old mangled life was nailed to the cross. United to him and then United to him, that old life was buried in the tomb, and then three days later, it came out again. I should have brought a second brand new hanger, right? Let's pretend. Comes out a new creation in Christ. United to him. That is what you need. If you are willing to repent of your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be made new. Not just straightened out, but new. Revelation 21.5 God seated on his throne declares, Behold, I am making all things new. Who are you not united to? Adam or Christ? Could it be that you need a new representative? Secondly, I want you to begin thinking here about how I started this sermon with that slogan, salvation is a life. Because really what Paul introduces here is he talks about our unity in Christ, unity with Christ. It's really something that is going to be just expounded upon here in the next couple of chapters that through our unity with him, we experience life, not just eternal life someday in, in, in the by and by, but we experience life in Him right now, abundant life. And by that, I don't mean what preachers mean when they promise you health and wealth and success and promotion. What I mean is Christ, the indwelling Christ in you, with you, filling you, even through great suffering and affliction and trial. Salvation is not just a moment. It is a life that we live where we know Christ moment by moment. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christian, have you been trying to live the Christian life on your own? Or have you been seeking the Lord and seeking to abide in Him in such a way that the life-giving presence of the resurrected Christ is in you and flowing out of you, abounding 